Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Ask Shane Anything. It's Friday. Awesome. But this is the last Friday where you're guaranteed to get Ask Shane Anything. As I've said the last couple weeks, we're going to start mixing things up starting next week. So you'll get two episodes of Ask Shane Anything a month still. But the other two Fridays, we're going to do some other stuff. I'm not going to tell you what we're doing yet, but it's going to be a hodgepodge of stuff. Um... My idea is to keep you guys guessing on what you're going to get on those other two Fridays. We have a lot of stuff to choose from and a couple of things I really enjoy doing from the past that we haven't been able to do for a while. So anyway, you just have to uh, wait and see. But anyway, this show does happen because some of you guys are pledging at $7 or more per month at that Ask Shane tier. Without you guys doing that, this show simply wouldn't happen. Um, as you can see, if you look at our Patreon, we are not hitting the tier for Ask Shane anything. I'm just kind of doing this because I love y'all. And honestly, I like doing the show. So if you like watching the show, maybe head to our Patreon at patreon.com sifted and bump up that pledge a couple, couple dollars a month and make sure that Ask Shane keeps happening from here into perpetuity. But for now, we have more great questions. Let's get to them. All right, our first question this week comes from Cinetike. Recently, we've seen an appalling number of people being laid off in the gaming industry. With the implosion of the Embracer Group and other situations, some of this could be expected, but it feels like there's much more to it than just that. What is your take on this? Have you ever seen something like this before? What's going on with the gaming industry? Well, I wish I could tell you that there is some kind of secret thing going on that no one's aware of, but it really kind of is just the Embracer Group. I mean, you have to realize that it spent like $2 billion acquiring stuff. Like think about Insomniac. I think PlayStation bought them for like 300 million-ish. Uh, for $2 billion, you could buy, I don't know, like 12 or 13 Insomniacs. So obviously all the studios and IP that Embracer bought, they're not all worth what Insomniac is worth. So you can imagine there's a lot more than that. And overall, there are a ton of employees that are working under the Embracer umbrella right now. And... Since it's been unable to secure funding, it has just started laying people off because it just simply can't afford to pay their salaries. This is all on Embracer, by the way. It completely overextended itself. It never should have gone this far if it wasn't 100% sure that it had the funding that it needed to secure a successful business. So Embracer is just destroying thousands of people's lives right now. I mean, that's really what's happening. And I do believe that if those studios had been owned by other publishers or other conglomerates, that this probably wouldn't be happening. So the truth of the matter is, one, a lot of it is Embracer. And I know you don't want to believe that, but that's just the truth. It does own that many studios and have that many employees that when it makes layoffs, they're big numbers and they do big numbers. So that's one part of it. The other part I would say is that I feel like a lot of this is cyclical. So we had the pandemic that lasted for like two and a half, three years or whatever. And we all know the stories of all that, how hard development was and people had to learn to develop from home. And surprisingly, they all did a really good job. Well, the thing is, is like they kept their employees employed throughout the entire pandemic. And a lot of them just finished their projects. So think back to 2013. Think about all, not just all the awesome games, but just the games period that came out in 2023. And a lot of those games were games that were supposed to come out earlier, but were pushed back at least a little bit because of the pandemic. So you have this rush of games that were all released in one year. And then what happens? I mean, the sad truth of it really is that the problem, the root of the problem, really, and I think what you're trying to get at is 
a lot of studios and publishers are just in the business of laying off a lot of people when they finish games because a lot of the people working with them on these games are not full-time employees. They are independent contractors, people who get paid but don't have taxes taken out. They're basically just freelancers. And so what happens is a lot of times when a game is finished, they lay off their freelancers. Now, I'll grant you this, I don't think that's 100% of what's happening here. These are real staff employees that are getting laid off at some of these studios. But I do think that a lot of it is just the, the developers, the publishers saying, hey, we just finished this gigantic project. Uh, take Marvel's Spider-Man 2, for example. That game was in development for three or four years. It got staffed up eventually, like four or 500 people. Eventually, you don't need that many. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times that means layoffs. And that's not just in the games industry. I mean, if you have a downturn in work at any business, one of the first things you're going to do is looking at cutting headcount because, as Pactor said a million times on Pactor Factor, that is the biggest expense of any company. And I can speak personally as someone who runs a company that it is undoubtedly the biggest outlay of cash that you are going to have running a business. So I don't think there's any nefarious thing going on behind the scenes here. I don't think that the games industry is an anomaly, so to speak, in this case, maybe a little bit because it is kind of project based and you finish your big thing and then you kind of you have this weird period where you're trying to figure out what you're doing next. So maybe a little bit, it's a little bit different, but the truth of the matter is, is no matter what industry you work in, if there's an industry downturn, which there's not for games, but if you don't have work, you can't pay people if you don't have money coming in. And I think that's really all that's happening here. All right, next we have a question from our good friend, Bachby. What are your thoughts on the rumors, rumors, that Microsoft wants to get ahead of Sony by releasing its next console a year early in 2026? Do you even think that's feasible? Isn't the appropriate year for new consoles 2028 or 2029? Do you think Xbox will try to jump ahead and produce the most powerful hardware on the market? Well, first I'm gonna say this, Bachby. I spent a lot of time out on the internet looking for video game news because I run Sifted. And I have to admit, I've not seen this rumor. Um, I don't know where you saw it or where you're getting it from, but I have not seen it myself. Not saying that it's not out there, just saying I haven't seen it. So I haven't thought about this until I got your question. Um, maybe this is something we should discuss on Game Face. I don't, I don't know how I missed this. We definitely haven't run it on Sifted. None of the major outlets are reporting this. So I'll still, I'll humor you and we'll go along with it here. Just for the point, uh, or just for the sake of trying to figure out what Microsoft should do with this hardware going forward. Um, first of all, no. <laughs> there's there's definitely not a new Xbox coming in 2026. There may be like a mid-cycle refresh coming in 2026. I don't see a new platform coming in 2026 from Xbox or from anyone for that matter. Nintendo will be two years into the Switch 2 at that point. But I don't see anything other than mid-cycle refreshes coming in 2026. And you're right, 2028, 2029 is the right time to release the next generation of consoles. And that's probably around when it'll happen-ish anyway. But here's the thing. Um, <laughs> Microsoft is less and less incentivized to release a console with every passing year, well, at least every passing year that Game Pass exists, it's less and less incentivized to even make a console, let alone make sure that it's producing the most powerful on the market. Now, I think some people would argue that the Xbox Series X right now is the most powerful console on the market. Now, I don't know if I would agree with that. It feels like Sometimes third-party games look better on PlayStation 5. Sometimes they look better on Xbox Series X. I would say for the most part, they're basically equal, but it's not like Microsoft, for sure, Microsoft's console is weaker than the PlayStation 5. And it hasn't really worked. I mean, let's be honest, other than Xbox One, which they rectified very quickly with Xbox One X, 
Microsoft typically has the most powerful console. Now you can argue Xbox 360 versus PS3. All I know is for the first like three or four years, third-party games looked way better on Xbox 360. So I think the average opinion, the average person was like, it's more powerful, even if maybe if you could write to the metal on the PS3, that may not be the case. But that hasn't really helped Microsoft in the past. The very first Xbox was probably the most powerful console, maybe slightly more powerful than GameCube. We just talked about Xbox 360, we talked about Xbox One, and now we're at Xbox Series X. So um, I feel like Microsoft has been swimming in those waters for a while, having at least close to the most powerful console. And I don't think that that has really helped it all that much. It, it's software. It, we say this all the time. It's the software. It's not the hardware. Look what Nintendo does with the Switch. Easily the weakest hardware market leader. So I think it's overblown that you need to have the most powerful console in order to compete um, it really comes down to the games at the end of it all. And a lot of it is just fighting against um, people who are just going to buy a PlayStation no matter what. And we've talked in the past about how people who bought a PS4, they got their digital library there, and that's why a lot of them just bought a PS5, because they just want to stay in that ecosystem where their library is. So there's all this stuff that plays into it. But the bottom line is that Microsoft is pushing towards a no-console future with Game Pass. Um, we just saw this week that some retailers in Europe have stopped stocking physical Xbox games because they're just not selling because the people who do buy an Xbox just get Game Pass and don't buy a ton of physical games anymore. Um, it, Microsoft is doing its own thing. And so I think trying to apply logic that we've applied to the console wars um, now, as we have in the past, I just don't think that it works that way anymore, unfortunately. I, I know it seems easy to be able to just boil it down to simple stuff, but that's not how it is anymore. Microsoft has a, an entirely different revenue model now. It has an entire, entirely different goals as a platform holder. Um, so I guess to answer your question, no. No new platform in 2026 from Xbox. Maybe a mid-cycle refresh, but that's best-case scenario. Probably a new Xbox in 28 or 29, um, but I don't think Microsoft is going to be all that concerned about making sure that it's the most powerful. And I do not think that it's all that concerned about getting out first. Um, again, at that point, PlayStation 5, people or libraries are going to be really large on PS5. I really think the only thing that Microsoft can do to wrestle away market share from PlayStation is to just have way more awesome games. <laughs> Next up, we have a question from Kalib Twelai. Game Freak did a terrible job developing Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Pocket Pair created Power World and is a Japanese studio. Do you think Game Freak or Nintendo might consider acquiring Pocket Pair rather than suing it? What will convince Game Freak or Nintendo to improve the Pokemon games? Great question, Kalib Twilai. Um, let me see here. Where do I start? I'm buying the studio instead of suing it. First of all, I don't think that Nintendo or Game Freak is going to be able to sue Power World. Because I think at the end of it, ultimately they have the parody excuse because it's violent Pokemon. It, I know it sounds silly, but that legitimately gives them a way out. They can say that they were doing a parody of Pokemon, this violent, more adult take on it, and they can get away with copying a lot of the Pokemon designs like they have in the game. That's just legally how I see it shaking out. So I just, I don't think Nintendo has a case to sue the game is what I'm getting at. Um, unfortunately, you can't uh, you can't sue people for copying a game's design. And truth be told, I think Pal World does enough different that it probably couldn't, Nintendo probably couldn't sue them for that either. Um, because I think it does tweak the base work enough to make it kind of their own thing. So I don't think suing the studio behind Pal World is going to happen. And I 
don't know if it was a good if it would be a good idea anyway. I think it would make Nintendo look like the bad guy because the thing has sold like 20 million units. If Nintendo shut that thing down, I think a lot of people would be mad at Nintendo because obviously people are enjoying the game. So I just think suing would be a terrible idea. Now, to your point about acquiring the studio, that to me is brilliant. And that is absolutely what Nintendo should do. <laughs> now, if you've been following the industry for any amount of time, you know what Nintendo should do and what it does do can often be two entirely different things. It does swim in its own blue ocean, as it likes to say. Um, but in this case, I mean, you have this studio sitting there that is making better Pokemon games than your Pokemon teams. It's a no-brainer to at least investigate. Here's the problem, though. Why would they want to sell? Like, they've just realized that, like, we can release our games, like, kind of indie-ish, publish them ourselves. We don't have to pay this middleman. We can make the vast majority of the money off of our games. Like, you don't really need publishers and distribution in 2024 anymore like you used to. Nintendo and other publishers used to be able to use that as leverage to get people to sign deals, but it doesn't really work that way anymore. So, the thing is... I don't know, 15 years ago, Nintendo probably could have bought that studio for, you know, like $50 million or something like that. Now, no chance. Nintendo will have to pay out the butt to buy that studio, but it might be worth it because look at the sales of Scarlet and Violet. I mean, they're still through the roof, even though the game, let's let's be honest, was poorly developed. It's kind of a, a piece of junk. So, Nintendo has a license to print money with the Pokemon franchise. Would it sell more than 20 million if the Power World team were making the games? Maybe, but it's doing so well now, I'm sure Nintendo's kind of like, don't rock the boat. To your question about what can we do to get better Pokemon games from Nintendo in general, stop buying Pokemon games. We say this all the time, vote with your wallet. If they're making bad Pokemon games, don't buy the Pokemon game. And that is how you'll get Nintendo to make better Pokemon games and possibly buy a studio like Pocket Pair that could absolutely make better Pokemon games. All right, our last question for this week's episode comes from one of our moderators, Alex. Tom Marks of IGN posted that Rocksteady has declined to provide a review copy of Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League to them. Speculation is circulating that Rocksteady is blacklisting IGN in part because of a negative preview of the game. Is this a valid reason for Rocksteady to be unhappy with IGN? Are there unwritten rules for previews to not give overly negative impressions? Was game trailers ever blacklisted during your tenure there? Okay, well, the first thing I need to do is kind of clear up how stuff works. It's not Rocksteady that's doing this. Like, I know how the internet works. You guys want to blame the studio. It's not the studio. It's Warner Brothers. It's not Rocksteady. Warner Brothers is in control of all this stuff. All Rocksteady does is make the game. Rocksteady can go to Warner Brothers and say, hey, like, we'd appreciate it if you would do this or you wouldn't do that, but they have no power over any of that. Once they sign the deal to make this game for Warner Brothers, that's it. Warner Brothers controls all the stuff that you're talking about. So PR from Warner Brothers sends out review code. There's no PR person at Rocksteady that handles that stuff. That's all handled at Warner Brothers Interactive. So Warner Brothers has refused to send IGN review code. But here's the thing. It wasn't just IGN. I'm sure whenever Tom Marks or whoever, I'm not familiar with him, but I'm sure he was like, it's just us because we don't have it and we need it. And maybe, I don't know, maybe is he a reviews editor? I don't know. But he may have just been freaking out and jumping the gun and, and assuming because they did publish a somewhat negative preview that that's what was happening. However, nobody got the game. Do you see any reviews of that game on Sifted today? None. The game's out there. I just saw it at the store. 
and there's no reviews of the game out there. So this is not them singling out IGN because they thought IGN published a bad preview. However, because of those bad previews, Warner Brothers may have decided not to give it to anyone early. You gotta realize, this game has been in development for like nine years. Warner Brothers has a ton of money invested into this game, and it needs it to sell well. And my guess is, they were like, it's too risky, it's too volatile to send it out there early. We did that with this preview build, and we got negative feedback on the game, and they've just decided that they're like, you know what, we'll just, we'll just... Roll the dice and see what happens. It may be better to fight off the negative PR of not having early reviews versus a bunch of outlets giving our game a 5 out of 10 or whatever. So that is what has happened with this game. And I'm saying that with like 95% certainty. Now, um, blacklisting over negative previews. Here's the thing. There is an unwritten rule in games journalism. At least there was whenever I was a part of like the major sites. Which is like, you can mention things that have you concerned. But, and and again, as an editor who was instructing people who are writing previews, this is what I would tell them, you can point out issues. And in fact, if you find issues, I want you to point them out. However, we always need to state at the end of the script or the article or whatever that this game is still in development and everything that we found that we have issues with can be fixed before it's released. So you're basically saying, okay, we found stuff we don't like, but the studio has time to fix it. And that lets you off the hook. Now, I don't know the exact preview. Um, I don't remember the exact verbiage that IGN used in that or if they had kind of the disclaimer at the end there. Um, but my guess is they pro- it probably didn't. And that's probably what angered Warner Brothers. So while it didn't cut IGN off of the code, it may have convinced Warner Brothers to cut everybody off of, re- of review code. Now, have we ever been blacklisted? Yes, we were blacklisted at game trailers once because one of my staff members did one of the dumbest things ever. Um... And Nintendo blacklisted us for six months over that. And truth be told, it was deserved. Like, I've never had an employee do something as stupid as what happened. Um, so we were blacklisted for six months. Like, they they even had, like, events. And we would go to try to go into their booth. And they would remember us and tell us to get out of their booth for six months. So, yes, we were blacklisted by them. And, again, earned by one of my employees doing something completely boneheaded. Um, and then the other time where anything like this ever happened, like we had, I had people calling me PR people complaining about our reviews all the time. If they, we gave something a mediocre score or something that was maybe a little bit lower than Metacritic, they'd always call, at least in the early part of my career, they would call. And then I think after a while, they just figured out, well, Shane, like he runs tight editorial. Like if I call him, he's going to have a valid reason why this happened. And they just stopped calling after a while. So anyway, um, there you go. That's kind of what happens behind the scenes when you're working in editorial in the games industry. Okay, that's it for this episode of Ash Ain't Anything. Once again, great questions, guys. You guys knock it out of the park every single week. We still do need questions, even though we're only doing this show now twice a month instead of four times a month. We still need your questions. So please hit that link in the header at sifted.net and ask me questions. Um, We won't be back next week, but we'll be back the week after that. Um, So make sure you keep loading up uh, that thread with questions so that I have stuff to answer when we go to do more episodes. I want to thank everybody, all our patrons. You guys are all awesome. But especially thank the people who have been pledging at that $7 tier all this time to keep Ask Shane going. I really enjoy doing this, and I hope you guys enjoy it too. We'll see you on Game Face on Tuesday.